It's just after 6 o'clock and you are listening to WFMU. My name is Benjamin Walker. This program is called Too Much Information. And uh, this hour, uh, we're going to hear from uh, one of our regulars. Uh, He's been on a few times now. Uh, Journalist Peter Moss, who's uh, in town next week. uh, Well, speaking in town, he lives here. But uh, next Wednesday, October 23rd at NYU's Global Center for the Academic and Spiritual Life. They are hosting a... uh, night discussion on surveillance and uh what's especially appealing about this one is they have someone um who was the director of national security studies that's carrie cadero joining um the brennan center for justice faiza Paitel, and then we have il press clay shirky and peter moss all trying to take state of our surveillance state you know, we're all still reeling from the Snowden releases, which are still coming out. But uh, I gave Peter a call earlier on to ask him uh, about surveillance this night. He wrote a profile for the New York Times a few weeks ago, I guess a few months ago now, on uh, Glenn Greenwald and uh, Laura Poitras, who have been responsible for so much of these links coming out. So, let's check in with uh, Peter. Welcome to WFMU. Great to be with you. So, you were one of the few journalists who actually got to speak with Snowden when you were doing the profile on Greenwald and Poitras that came out in the New York Times last summer. Can you just briefly tell us again what you got to talk to him right, about? Well, this was actually an interview, kind of a Q&A, that went through Laura Poitras. So, I wasn't in direct contact with him. I sent kind of a, a list of encrypted questions to Laura Poitras, who is in direct contact with Snowden, and she then um, gave them to Snowden. Uh, That's encrypted. closer than a lot of other people got. Yeah, no, there's only, I mean, it, it's, you know, the only actually kind of published Q&A between Snowden and a journalist in uh, in quite some time since really uh, Laura and Glenn were with Snowden in Hong Kong. So it was it was uh, an unusual opportunity because I had been working on a profile of Laura Poitras, uh, you know, who is the journalist that Snowden uh, first made contact with and exchanged lots of information with, uh, as well as Glenn Greenwald. And so she had enough kind of confidence or whatever to uh, let me ask these questions, put me in touch with uh, Snowden, albeit using her as a channel. And um, I asked him mainly about kind of why he decided to leak these documents to Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald. This, they weren't the kind of typical choice that you'd think. Neither one of them worked for a major American publication. Glenn uh, is a columnist for the, the Guardian, a British publication, and Laura is a documentarian. And the really interesting thing is that uh, Snowden said, look, the reason that I, I went to these two is because I felt that I could trust them because I, I knew what their ideas on surveillance were. I knew, he said, that Laura had herself been under surveillance, and he knew Glenn's writing very well, that Glenn had written quite extensively against the American surveillance state. So he really didn't care so much about going to a big publication. He cared mostly about going to journalists whom he felt he could trust. And then on top of that, uh, he said the reason that he went to them, particularly to Laura, is because 
having been under surveillance, she kind of led already an encrypted life. She had to encrypt a lot of her communication because she knew that she was being watched by the U.S. government electronically and also being stopped at airports. And this meant that she was able to set up with him encrypted, super encrypted channels so they could have discrete conversations that the government couldn't listen in on. And this was extremely important for Snowden because he was going to leak all these documents and he wanted to be sure that first off, the U.S. government didn't find out about his plans. And then he wanted to be sure that once he did leak them, that they were handled correctly and safely, which Laura, being kind of very techno savvy, uh, was able to ensure. Yeah, yeah. So we've all heard the story about how Snowden wrote to Glenn Greenwald first, but uh, got rebuffed because, well, Glenn wasn't using some of the encryption practices that Snowden wanted him to use, and Laurie was using them. I'm curious about yourself. Uh, You've been working on uh, issues on surveillance and privacy for a while now, a book in the works. Are you using encryption technology? Yes, um, quite a bit now, and, you know, largely as a result of the things that Snowden has disclosed and just the necessities of the trade now. I mean, it's very clear what the NSA's capabilities and interests are. And it's also very clear that the U.S. government is very willing and interested to not just survey journalists, but to subpoena and prosecute them, as it has done with New York Times journalist Jim Risen and a number of others. So, you know, yes, now when I need to, I encrypt communication, use encrypted chat programs. But also I'd say um, one of the other things that I do, and this goes in the exact opposite direction, is I don't use any electronics at all for communication in many cases. You know, there's uh, now it's the safest thing to do rather than encrypt is to meet somebody face to face um, or have them send things through the mail to you, even though, of course, mail can be open it requires a kind of greater degree of judicial awareness than just uh, getting your metadata does. So I kind of go both ways. I I encrypt um, when I need to, and I go extremely low tech when I need to. Um, I should say that, you know, a lot of my communications are, are, you know, neither extremely low tech nor encrypted. I, you know, still feel that I can uh, say most of what I want to say in the clear uh, that it's not anything that's going to be of terrific interest to the U.S. government. Um, but when I when I feel that there is something that might be of interest to the U.S. government that I don't want them to know about, um, then I go in one of these two directions. Yeah, yeah. There's just so many revelations that have come from uh, this just this one source, Edward Snowden. And, uh, you know, I have to say that for someone who at least tries to keep up to speed or aware of, of the surveillance issue, it's just like the mind boggles. I mean, you just brought up, you know, one thing there with the journalist and uh, encryption technology. Uh, I mean, we could talk about that for hours. But could you maybe talk about some of the other things you'll be talking about at this event next Wednesday? Well, I think one of the things that we're going to discuss is is the threat that this represents, not just to, to journalists, but to ordinary American citizens in terms of the harm that is actually being done to Americans in particular as a result of surveillance, as a result of, for example, people being stopped at airports and having their electronics confiscated. At the moment, that's happening to mainly, it, it seems, because we don't have all the data on it, but, you know, kind of the, the, the main targets at the moment seem to be Muslim Americans um, for, you know, all the reasons related to Iraq and Afghanistan and, and al-Qaeda. And I think one of the things we'll be talking about is why this is happening, why this is problematic, and, and how this represents a threat to you know, people who don't 
see themselves as 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 being the likely targets of, of surveillance. But you know, the ways that surveillance states tend to operate is that they survey more and more, and the folks who they survey kind of become uh, a very a larger cohort of the population than, than initially starts out. So I think we'll be talking about some of that as well. And I think we'll just be also be talking about, the, you know, the very important role that the, the Bill of Rights, the First and Fourth Amendments in particular, freedom of the press and uh, freedom from unreasonable search, just how they're core parts of, of, of what makes America special and how these surveillance programs um, are debilitating these constitutional rights. And that's a a deep problem for the future. You bring up the issue of surveillance on Muslim Americans, and I think this is one that, especially here in New York, uh, you know, some of the articles we've read before about the New York Police Department, but it seems that there's a number of things that came out in the Snowden documents that I feel a lot of people already suspected, or at least thought were happening. I'm curious for you, like, what was an actual bombshell well, I think, you know, the biggest bombshell was actually the first one that landed, which was this first story by Glenn Greenwald based on the Snowden documents that consisted of the publishing of the secret court order requiring Verizon to hand over to the U.S. government all of the metadata that it has on all of its customers and all of their calls. And what that meant, and it's believed that all the other phone carriers are also being required to do the same thing. What that meant is that every single phone call that you and I make is being registered by the U.S. government, who we call, how long we talk to them, how often we call them. And the government, and this is really problematic because the government's response is, oh, we're not listening to your phone calls. And that's true in most cases. Sometimes they do listen to phone calls, but they, they, they do that in a much more targeted way. But the, the, the problem is that this metadata, and metadata is a very neutral sounding word, we should find a better one, but this metadata is actually more valuable and gives away more about our lives than the actual content of our calls. Because when you have somebody under surveillance in the old kind of fashioned way, what would you do? You, you put a tail on them and you would try to find out where they go, who they talk to, how often they stay in these places, who their best friends are. And these are exactly the kinds of things that phone metadata reveals who you call, how often you talk to them, what time of day you talk to them. And this is something that the government, I just believe, should not be able to possess in this unregulated, dragnet, indiscriminate manner. When they have suspicions about somebody, yes, sure, go and get that information from the phone company. But collect that information on every American? Uh, that, to me, was the most shocking bombshell thing. You know, another thing we hear about in the news a lot is the data collection uh, policies of corporations, you know, not just advertisers, but, but companies like Facebook and Twitter. You know, it's such a, this data collection is such a central component of, of business right now. And I'm curious if you could talk about where these policies connect with our government surveillance. Well, there are two levels of kind of trouble with the corporate collection of data of that sort. The, the, the first problem is that the corporations will hand this, this, uh, this information, this data over to the government, you know, at the first whiff of a subpoena. Um, and it can just be a police subpoena. It doesn't even have to be something from, from a, a court. And that's, that's one area where it's problematic that, you know, Facebook will hand over to the government without much <laughs> pressure. And in some cases, absolutely automatically with just kind of click of a mouse. 
um, all this information about what you like, what you've seen, et cetera, et cetera, that goes beyond, obviously, your call data. And so that's one way in which the corporate collection of data about our activities, what we buy, what we like, what we look at, what we search for is, is problematic, and, and that concerns me the most. Um, and then, you know, the other is just, yeah, of course, they collect this data for their own marketing purposes in order to try to sell us more stuff. Um, and that's problematic. And, you know, no corporation should know more about me than my wife does. But um, that bothers me slightly less because I think we can fight against that more effectively. Um, we have, you know, we can't fight against a, a secret court order that, or that requires a cell phone carrier to hand over all the phone calls that we make to the government. But we don't have to use Google. You know, we can use other search engines that are out there that don't collect as much data. There's one called uh, DuckDuckGo, which, which um, it doesn't offer as good search results, but it doesn't collect as much data. Uh, and we can use other email providers other than Gmail uh, that don't collect as much data on us as, as Google does. So we have ways to fight, it back, fight back against the corporate surveillance, which aren't perfect by any stretch. Um, but uh, we don't have as many ways to fight back against the secret government surveillance. And, you know, also Google cannot arrest me, but, um, but the government can. And so that's why I'm more concerned at the moment about what the government's doing, which is not to say that what Google's doing isn't problematic either. Yeah, I guess for me, the, the, the way the two connect is that as Americans, as more and more Americans put more and more of their lives on Facebook and Twitter and Google, it seems to feed into this uh, supposed new way of thinking about privacy that, oh, we're okay with all this information getting out there. But again, you know, it seems to me that Americans are just having a really hard time wrapping their head around the state of our surveillance state. I mean, sometimes it reminds me of people who are in abusive relationships, you know, like there's this shock, this difficulty of even imagining that your partner is capable of such horrible cruelties. But is it not fair to say that this and it, it seems that this shock is making it extra difficult to imagine, you know, where we're going to go next. Well, it, for me, it's not difficult to imagine where we're going next. I mean, like any abusive relationship, um, unless there's a, a, a significant rupture, uh, it gets deeper and worse and, 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 and more abusive. Um, if there is, God forbid, another major terrorist attack on America doesn't have to be on the level of, of a 9-11, but something that's a little bit bigger than pressure cookers in, in Boston, which was tragic enough, um, then this entire surveillance apparatus, which isn't being used at the moment to harm the majority of Americans uh, or to you know, <laughs> disrupt their lives um, and intrude on their, in their lives in a way that it doesn't do at the moment, then that could change because then the government all of a sudden faces new threats that it uh, begins to use its already vast powers to to um, react to. And as we found out after 9-11, you know, the government needed to react to it, but there was a an overreaction. We invaded a country that we probably shouldn't have invaded and all sorts of other things happened as well. And so, you know, that's kind of the future of this relationship unless we somehow right it in terms of establishing the powers that the government has and, and how they should should use them. Um, I, you know, I just think, like, I was a student way back um, in, in the era of the Soviet Union. I was a student in, in, in St. Petersburg when I was still the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, I was followed around, and, and I knew not to use any of the public phones in the dormitory I lived in or, or nearby. 
and I, I just think like you know if if the KGB had had um, uh, been told that you know okay these American students who are living in Leningrad right now they've all agreed to carry tracking devices that will show you you know where they are and who they're calling. And the KGB would have been delighted because they would have provided so much more information than they already had. Um, and they would have also been dumbfounded that, you know, uh, targets of, of surveillance uh, uh, would agree to do that. But we're doing that now with cell phones, which, you know, beam out our location and, and provide information on, on, on who we're calling and all that. And, you know, this is a, a, a situation now where the state, our state, has much more information than any previous surveillance state has ever had, hasn't yet used these powers and this data for all of the evil reasons and uh, purposes that, you know, previous surveillance states, the Soviet Union or the Nazi state have. But, you know, powers tend to get abused by governments. They, they, they tend to use them and then abuse them. And it hasn't happened yet on a massive scale. But I think we need to make sure that it won't. And the only way to make sure it won't is to, to, to limit these powers. And, yeah, how do we make people care about it? I think, you know, one of the ways is to make them understand that there already are people being harmed. And, you know, the, the Muslim Americans who are being stopped and uh, arrested and detained at airports, um, uh, their stories need to be told much better. I don't think they have been. I told Laura Poitras' story. Uh, she herself was on a watch list and was stopped at airports and had electronics confiscated. Um, and, you know, people responded to that. And I think it's been a failure of, of people like me to not tell more stories like that because... In telling the story of Laura Poitras being detained and not being allowed to see or talk to a lawyer and having electronics taken, not having any recourse against that, being subjected to this great power of the state, having no right to, to object because in airports in America, you don't have normal constitutional rights. Um, I think it really shows people that there's a problem in the relationship between the government and the ordinary citizen. And we need to, to demonstrate and show that more often. Well, let's leave it at that. Uh, Peter Moss, thank you very much for, for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. And if folks want to learn more, they can go to the NYU Global Center for Academic and Spiritual Life on Wednesday, October 23rd for a whole discussion with Peter and a bunch of others. Uh, we have all the information and a link to that on the WFMU website. So we'll have a link to that on the Accu playlist if you want to check that out. But this weekend, on October 19th, is the third annual WFMU Radio Vision. And man, I am so excited for so many of the things, but I thought... Hey, Starley, are you there? Um, I am. Hey, so I have uh, one of our guests at Radio Vision, Starley Kine, who's going to be joining us for not one, but two panels on Saturday, and I thought I'd, I'd just reach out to you for a second. Where are you, at a bar? Yeah, I'm going outside, though. Did you hear the music? <laughs> I did. Are you, like, at a, are you at a rock show? I'm at a bar. Okay. All right. You know, it's early. I guess it's Monday, <laughs> though. It's uh, cool. I, I a business see, meeting. I see how you roll. But, uh, hey, listen, you know, I can't thank you enough for doing uh, not one but two uh, events for our Radio Vision Festival this weekend. But I thought I would just uh, talk to you for a few minutes about the native advertising one, which I'm so glad you're doing because, again, like you, uh, a lot of people don't even know what that term means. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's, it's yeah. kind of like you're going to be able to show us what that means from an experience you <laughs> just had. And I thought maybe you could tell us about that. That's something that a lot of New Yorkers may have seen of your work. 
Oh, yeah. You want me to tell you about the yeah. actual project? Yeah. It was a... It was a project that I did with Levi's and the Thing Quarterly, which is this art yeah. sort of periodical. Um, and it is basically the idea was to make a Levi's. It was kind of like Levi's sponsored a living magazine. It's supposed to be like kind of a magazine that you can walk through in different public places. So what I did was write five essays that were put in like various subway stations and bus stop billboards across the country and also in London. So, you know, the the term, the industry speak for this is is artists co-creating with brands now. So did you realize really? that... I didn't, I didn't know that. Exactly. Did you did you know that you were uh, uh, doing this early on? In other words, were you dealing with Levi's people or, I mean, were you sitting at I, editorial meetings with, you know, marketing officers? <laughs> uh, no, I was not. I was very protected from all that. I did it because uh, the thing quarterly, do you want me to explain what thing quarterly is or is it too complicated right now? It's a little complicated, but it's an yeah. art project, but they also do stuff with brands and advertising. Yeah. They didn't until now. This is a new thing for them, too. Thing quarterly is an art project, and it's been an art project uh, purely until this collaboration. And I did a project with them before, and so they were the ones who partnered up with Levi's for this project. Yeah and then came to me and asked if I wanted to be a part of it. And so I didn't ever talk to anyone at Levi's. I wasn't in any administrative meetings. I didn't, um, all they, they said, do you want to do this? You'll have complete control of what you write. Um, you can do it anything you want, and you'll own it in the end, and they'll deal with all the kind of other stuff that I wouldn't want to deal with. Yeah, but you're leaving, out, you're leaving out one very important detail. Oh, am I? Which part? You got like remunerated very well. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I, and then so so what? It, so I got paid too. So that that was the important detail. Yes. So it was like being able to do um, an art project, which is exactly what I wanted to do, while getting paid the way I would if I was doing an ad. Yeah. So you you got paid at like like adult level rate, not the the child artist rate. <laughs> oh yeah, I got paid it. Like I got paid ad rates. Yeah, which is amazing. So and I yeah. think when you look at the. Uh, uh, range of experience that artists and creative people have had with this sort of uh, new way of creating. I think you were on the, you know, on the very one of the extremes, which is freedom and protection. And yes. the experience worked out very well. You got a big check. Your stuff was out there. There wasn't a lot of interference. No one was calling you saying, you know, this doesn't go with the 501s. Can you change that? Right. Or but, can you incorporate genes into what you write? Yeah. Can you just add... 20% more denim. But, 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 so here's, and th this is the starting point for what interests me and why I wanted to host this conversation at Radio Vision. You walk into the subway, Starly, and you see what? You see, well, like in the New York subway, you see like a million Levi's ads, and then you also see my essays, which I wasn't fully aware was going to happen. So that's, so that's, but actually kind of, so you see my, my artwork with an ad. So it kind of blends in more than I was kind of expecting it to. And how did you feel when you saw that? What did you think? Did you think like, huh? Or like, what, what, what went through your head when you walked in the subway and you saw it for the first time? Um, I was just, I was bummed out when I first, the New York one. I feel like, uh, I didn't see the San Francisco one. I think that one was more fully realized what they told me, what, what I was thinking was going to be. But the New York one, I walked in and I 
I've been really excited because I was also, it wasn't just that I got paid well and I didn't have to deal with all the bad stuff, but I was really excited about the project because I liked the idea. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, uh, and it was, it was interesting to me. And then when I actually saw it, the way they did it, it, um, I was deflated and it looked like I, it looked a lot more than, like I had done an ad. Hmm. I didn't, and I didn't even, I didn't take a picture of it with my phone. Oh. Like, that's a true marker. Because I've been really, really excited to see it. Like, I walked from, I was on, like, 28th Street, and I walked down to, it was on Delancey Stop. I, was, I couldn't wait, and then. Oh, so did you even, like, hang on, hang around the subway platform, or did you just, like, I'm out of here, and you got on, like, the first um, train? I did. I, I just got on, I didn't, I didn't, because also the way they placed it, I think it was in different, the, so this is the thing. I, I was very, very right to trust the thing quarterly because they, everything they by the time it came to New York, they had lost control. So everything they had control of worked mm. very well. They had control of the San Francisco one, and it, apparently that was really beautiful and placed like it was a giant. One of my essays was like across, on the floor, like just, and I guess people would just kind of walk around it and read it, and it was great. But they had no control over one in New York. So when it, once it was just up to Levi's, um, I think what happened was. They were like, we have to just feature our ads, and then we'll stick these essays at, at the end. Yeah. And so it wasn't even like place. It didn't even make any sense, like where it was, and you could barely see it. And plus, it looked there was so much text on the Levi's ads that it looked like mine was just part of text yeah. describing jeans. Do you think though that the ex- you know so you you're really kind of jumping in after it's done and seeing it, but as a creative person, having you know. If you could have gone back and sort of, you know, rolled up your sleeves and dealt with them, I mean, that 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 could have been just as awful as the experience you had of just seeing the stuff. Yeah, I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't have wanted to deal with. Yeah, I don't. Right. I mean, I don't think I would have had any say. I think there's also so many different cogs in the system when it comes to this stuff that I'm not sure. By the time it actually gets physically put out, it's not the same thing as having like a public art piece where you are. <laughs> supervising everything yeah. I think the people who actually put it out had very little to do with the people who originally came up with uh, yeah. bought the concept well so this whole term native advertising have you even have you been paying attention you know sort of some of the debates about this because I mean you, what you just articulated is really at the heart of it for me it's it's really thinking about what do creative people how are they going to survive in this new form of creating you know when we're when we're when all of the money is coming from levi's to do projects like this what are the things we should be thinking about what whereas i you know what should we say no to what should we say yes to um i feel most of the conversations we have are much more at a higher level where at at journalism thinking about the ethics about you know what is an ad what is a not what is not an ad are we fooling people if you think of like the scientology remember the scientology dust up from a few years about a year ago which one? In the <laughs> which one? The one at the Atlantic Magazine where they had sort of published a advertorial from Scientology. Oh. Yeah, and that's. It, I feel like, but I feel like advertorials are different than this because, like, this is like I feel like I've seen things where they people where writers are hired to write like short stories that incorporate product placement in it, uh-huh. stuff like that. I wouldn't. I w- I would. I think I would say no. I know I would say no to that. Um, no offense to the writers who have done it, but to this. This I feel like, this I feel like, I, I have no regrets doing it. This I feel like is a good model to start with because it could only, I have so much freedom and I own it so entirely that to me it's only, like, things could just be learned from it. Yeah, like yeah. the next time it's done, they could. Well, I, I, 
I, I appreciate that. And, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're going to be starting off with you. So this panel on Saturday, we have, uh, we have some amazing guests. Well, first of all, uh, we have Rob Walker. Uh, from the New York Times Magazine Consumed column is going to be moderating this one. And he wrote that uh, that book, Buying In, a few years ago, which, if you haven't read, is one of my favorites. It was just like a few years too early. This guy would be like Malcolm Gladwell big if he had just waited, you know? But yeah. <laughs> it was just too yeah. early. But he's moderating this conversation. And then uh, we have Bob Garfield, of course. Yeah. Who is... Uh, going to be uh, telling us all about, uh, he's, you know, of course, the co-host of On the Media, and, yeah. uh, you know, has writ he's written extensively about his hatred of native advertising, and I kind of feel that um, uh, it's, it's kind of overboard, but James Dell, who is the head of uh, Gawker Studio for a lot of the native advertising projects at uh, Gawker Media, is going to be coming on and talking about how this is the great, the greatest thing that can happen for creative people like yourself. Not only will you be able to uh, get paid at, at better rates, but you're going to be able to do a lot more. And this is where all the money is coming for the future, and we should just be excited about it. So I feel the three, the four of you, yeah. it's just going to be a mind-blowing sure. conversation. I can't wait till Bob Garfield and I get into a fight. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like it's going to happen. Um, yeah. But I'm excited. I am excited about the future of native advertising. Wow. I'm, well, not, I'm not being paid to say that. That's that's amazing. I mean, I have to yeah. say I'm a little more on the on the frightened side. And I think because it has to do with the creative people, which is why I'm so excited to learn from you on, on Saturday, and I hope the audience will as well. I mean, I had this amazing thought. I was in Rome this mm -hmm. uh, summer. And I was, you know, strolling through the Vatican and I was thinking about all this art, you know, in the museum. And it yeah. struck me that, you know, the church was like the Levi's, <laughs> the Red Bull, the Coca-Cola of the day, right? All yeah. of these artists, they had no, ch if they wanted to get paid, you know, this is the brand that they had to work with. And, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's all the, it's benefactors. There's yeah. So much. I don't know. There's, I, I mean, we'll talk about this on the panel, but there's so much advertising in everything that I feel... Yeah. I, don't, I just feel like it's about navigating it very carefully. Well, I don't know if I would be able to pull that off. And I also wonder about, you know, for someone just starting out, like I think, you know, a 22-year-old getting a call from an agency. And now they're so good about this. Like the the brands aren't just writing to people like the thing who are doing something quarterly who are doing something great. As soon as a 22-year-old makes a viral video or has something go, you know, a, a blog post, they're getting contacted by brands right away to make something. And I just wonder if these folks have the skills to navigate that, you know, whereas they could so easily blow it with their audience so quickly versus whereas I think someone with a little more experience and savvy could, could perhaps, you know, you know, know, be a little more ready to deal with it? Yeah. Well, I also have a history with the thing quarterly. So, I mean, I feel like it was all about trusting my middle Of course. Man. No, no, no. But I'm just saying, though, like yeah. they have the savvy, too. But I'm just, I'm just thinking about as we move. No, I know. But I'm saying those kids wouldn't necessarily have had that experience. No. Like, I, like I, this was just like an extension of something that I've been doing for a while that I had history with. Oh, yeah, yeah, like yeah. instant no, no, no. and then they come and get it. I'm yeah, talking about yeah. the kid getting just contracted directly to co-create yeah, yeah. with the brand, which is where we're going. And that's why, you know, for me, it's much more on the creator side, which, again, is why I want this f to be focused on that. I feel this is sort of the receiving end, you know, is it 
Because, you know, the government's getting ready to investigate whether they should regulate native advertising. I'm not kidding. Like, we're, we're, it's, it's getting that serious. Where are, is the American public being fooled by what's an ad and what's not? I'm not so much interested in that, that conversation as I am at the creator level. Because, you know, you say that it's not such a big deal or, or you know, you, 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 you can make your way through this. But I feel at the end of the day, saying something is just very different than selling something. I just That's just part of, like, my DNA. I really, really believe that and I, f- I fear that this can really there's a big danger in confusing or confusing Lip- those two slopes. yeah yeah, yeah. anyway no, I, no, I mean I, I mean I, and like and yeah and like I said I uh there is um I feel like even by the end of this I had I was more I mean there's just a lot of factors there's a lot of like uh, uh, there's also got to be this whole thing though like it can't only be the advertisers who are paying people good like actual money for their stuff too. Yeah. Like then it's just going to be so lopsided. There's a reason that we're being driven into the arms of the of the ad. Team. Oh yeah. Well, maybe they did. Yeah. Anyways, well, we're, we've got a lot more. I just wanted to yeah. throw out a little teaser here to the audience, get folks maybe excited to come to Radio Vision yeah. on Saturday. I mean, look at that. We have this. We have uh, a comedy podcast with Tom Sharpling, Julie Klausner, Jake Fogelness. We have Laurie Anderson. We have uh, Alexis Ohanian. I mean, it is a crazy day, a crazy day. We have Planet Money with Liz Berg, Alex and Liz Berg, and uh, Chris Bannon from WNYC. It is going to be a ridiculous, ridiculous day, and uh, I'm glad you're going to be there. Thank you. All right, Starla, we'll let you get back to the bar. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So that's coming up this Saturday. All the information you need for Radio Vision is at radiovision.wfmu.org. I almost forgot that, Andrea, and I, I looked at you for, uh, for help for the name of the website. Oh, anytime, Ben. <laughs> Andrea Salenzi is now joining me in the studio. She's been working so hard with me on the uh, Radio Vision Festival this year. In fact, she's moderating a panel with Starley, who's doing double duty. We talked a little about this last week, but uh, tell me how you've progressed one week later, Andrea. I don't know. I've just been, this is the most indulgent thing I've ever done because I love listening to these radio stories. Yeah. So on the panel is going to be Starly Kine. Who we just heard. Who we just heard. Jonathan Goldstein from CBC's Wiretap and John Ronson. So I just spent all weekend just listening to their work and yeah. trying to figure out what, if, if I were to just play two minutes of each, how do I narrow that down? Yeah, yeah. Sounds like kind of a fun weekend. It really was. <laughs> <laughs> not, not too bad homework. But yeah, I'm really glad you're doing this panel. We're calling it Theater of the Radio Eye. It's funny, like before I came into the station today, I called up our friend uh, Jonathan Goldstein, who was in the studio. He's the host of a program called Wiretap out of the CBC. And I interrupted him from work just so I could record a little bit uh, to play on the show tonight. And I totally screwed up the recording. What? <laughs> it's so bad. You're it's a radio professional. Ben. I know. I'm sure we can hear just a little of it, right? Yeah, we might be able to. Why don't we? Why don't we play a little clip from Starly? You want to do that? You set one oh, up for sure. me here. Absolutely. Well, um, I first came to know Starly through this incredible piece she did for This American Life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Doctor Phil, and what she does is after a breakup, decides that the thing she must do now is write her own epic torch breakup song, and in the process, she calls Phil Collins. <laughs> It won a Third Coast Award that year, and really just, I I go back to it from time to time. Yeah. Roman Mars from 99% Invisible says, great radio becomes like a song that you can listen to over and over again, and 
and get really? something new from every time. And this is a story that I feel that way about. And this is the topic of this discussion that you're going to be moderating is radio storytelling. So let's check it out. This is from Starly Kine, who we just heard. This is an excerpt called... Dr. Phil. All right, here we go. Great to be with you. Oops, sorry. Great that's, to be with you. That's the sorry. wrong one. Sorry. Here we go. Before I explain why I decided to write and record a breakup song, even though I have no musical ability and can't play an instrument of any kind, I should probably explain a bit about the breakup itself. It was only after Anthony broke up with me that all the warning signs I had missed came sharply into focus. Like the time he told me he didn't like taking pictures of girlfriends because it was a downer to have those photos around once the relationship was over. I'd had a crush on him since the day we met, but he always had a girlfriend in Canada. Then she broke up with him, and we got together. A week after that, he told me I was the one. Which, in retrospect, was probably the biggest warning sign of all. It was hands down the corniest relationship I've ever been in. And by corniest, I mean greatest. We'd pass entire evenings just complimenting each other. We took hand-holding to new heights. And we listened to hours and hours of music, teenager style, playing one song after another while smiling a lot. I don't quite remember how our Phil Collins phase began. I think it was one of those things that started off ironically, with Anthony lip-syncing, adorably, to Against All Odds one night. But over time, it became less and less ironic, until one day we were actual fans. How can I just let you walk away? Just let you leave without a trace When I stand here taking every breath with you Ooh. You're the only one who really knew me at all We liked how honest and sad it was. How can I just let you walk away? Just let you leave without a trace? You're the only one who really knew me at all. We pictured Phil Collins at the piano, writing it the tears running down his face. Anthony broke up with me on New Year's Eve. I told you, corny. I didn't really see it coming, and I definitely didn't want it to happen. He said... You're going to be okay. I just cried and cried. I wanted to stop it, to fix it. I searched deep inside myself for the right words to say, and out of my mouth popped this. How can you just let me walk away? I'm the only one who really knew you at all. And I meant it. In fact, I go so far as to say that in that moment, no one could have conveyed how I was feeling better than Phil Collins. If I thought I'd been in a Phil Collins phase before, it was nothing compared to what came next. I was no longer listening to his songs for pleasure, but for pain. They were breakup songs, and hearing them was the only thing that made me feel better. And by better, I mean worse. There's something so satisfying about listening to sad songs. They're like how you would actually be spending your day if you were allowed to just break down and sob and grab hold of everyone you met. They make you feel less alone with your crazy thoughts. They don't judge you. In fact, they understand you. 
A breakup song won't ever suggest you start online dating or that you're better off without him. They tell you that you're worse without him, which is exactly what you want to hear because it's how you feel. I didn't want to be cheered up. I didn't want to bounce back. I didn't want to meet someone new. I wanted to wallow, big time, deeply, and with the least amount of perspective possible. And the only way to do that was by turning off my phone and turning up the sad, sad music. Ooh, I actually pulled like a good uh, sad, sad song to, to come out of that piece there. But that's Starly Kind, one of our uh, guests uh, at Radio Vision, which is happening this, the WFMU Radio Vision Festival, which is taking place this Saturday, October 19th. Go to radiovision.wfmu.org for all the information. So, Andrea, here's the magic question. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, go yeah, on. No, you go. I just want to say that I think she's such an incredible writer. Yes, you, that's what I was going to ask you about. And writing for radio is incredibly hard. So I have two lines that I adore in that piece. Yeah. Um, she At one point, she's like, and by corniest, I mean greatest. And by better, I mean worse. Like at different points, she uses this like narrative technique, which is... It would look, it would super look academic so, here. It would look so boring on in, in like an article. But in radio, if you say, yeah. and by corniest, I mean best, just that's the way we talk. It's beautiful well, you, you just called it a piece and that's what i was gonna that's what i was just gonna go to i mean like as we're trying to get ready for these three genii this weekend are we are they are they radio essayists are they radio monologists monologists are they radio writers what are we gonna call them i think they they put themselves in their own work to explore a topic hmm. um you know i i was going to play a clip from uh jonathan goldstein and I recorded this afternoon. I interrupted him in the studio. Totally messed it up. But I asked him that question, too. And he said f- he didn't like the word essay either because it sounded a little pompous. And he started using the word monologue, which was also pompous. But he was spelling it wrong. <laughs> well, also the problem with monologue is it's not just them talking. You know, they, sure. they interview other people. They go they go places in these kinds of stories. Sure, sure. But yeah. uh, perhaps maybe that the fact that he was spelling it wrong. We, had, we got in this great <laughs> argument, too. And he looked it up while... <laughs> and I just—I totally messed it up. Uh, this is amateur Aww. hour for yours truly. Uh, so sad. We can play her just a little. No. Well, let's let's let's. Uh, why don't we play a little bit from Jonathan? Okay, you, great. You pulled up a clip here. This is from uh, uh, a piece from his program, Wiretap. Um, this is a piece I really adored when I first heard it, and and have gone back to a few times. It's called Why Travel: A Journey Journey to Bali, and he, it's originally an essay he wrote for a Travel Magazine. Yeah. Nice little native advertising connection, and um. And they, I guess they sponsored his trip, and we kind of hear about his experience on a solo vacation, and it's very much from the perspective of, of who he is. All so right. a question I really can't wait to ask him is, this, like the Jonathan Goldstein we hear on the radio, how do the lines blur between who he actually is? All right, let's check it out. Here we go. And... This is from Wiretap Season 9. Why Uh-oh. travel? A journey to Bali. Something's happening here. It's not looking good. It says the program is... <laughs> what? One second here. Okay. All right. Um, and something he did that I think is really cool is he mixed in some archival audio throughout the story. So the first and last voices you'll hear are from old ads. Well, you know what? I don't know if, if it loaded. we're able to hear it. Oh, this is terrible. Hold on a second. Stand by. Can you not play a wave file in Windows Media Player? Hmm. It might be a wave file. You might want to open it in VLC. Okay. 
I just, I think, um, there's this incredible moment that I want everyone to listen for where he's offered, um, cat poop coffee. Oh, no. Uh... And he's just, like, very particular about um, why would you even travel in the first place if you can just sit on your couch and watch television, like, <laughs> have a nice drink. That really, we just, we like our schedules not to be interrupted by things like Ooh. a trip to the other side of the planet. Yeah. Which, um, like, the actual Jonathan Goldstein once told me that he doesn't like to order fish on the menu unless his um, dinner party companion knows the Heimlich maneuver. So he's a very careful person, and then in actual life, and I then his give characters there we go. as well. Fantastic. Ready? Okay, let's there hear it. Why travel? I will give travel this. It gives us an excuse. It allows us to get away with things we never could back home. In Bali, I can have beer with my breakfast. I can take three baths during the day. I could spend a great deal of mid-afternoon time staring at a tree and thinking about trees without the risk of running into an old friend from high school or an ex-girlfriend's father who always suspected I was a flake. Travel is permission to be absurd, to play, to make believe. When we travel, we look at ourselves differently in the mirror. We talk to ourselves differently in the shower. We dream differently. What does it mean to dream upside down? on the other side of the earth. It is with these thoughts that I decide to explore Bally's nightlife. I should here say that I am not the type. My going out shirt makes me feel like I'm wearing a sandwich board that reads, what's the use? And bassy dance music makes me feel like I'm locked in a polo cologne saturated car trunk. But partying is serious business in Bally. The streets of Bally seem to throb with bass, it's the kind of thing that normally sends a retreat, retreat message to my brain. When I think about all the things that bassy dance music has kept me from, the women I might have met, the pants I could have bought in stores I was too terrified to enter, it just seems unfair. Not tonight, though. I won't let it. And so I head to my first foam party. But when I get there, it isn't like I imagined. The floor mostly looks like an apartment laundry room where one of the machines is overflowed. There are suds, but you'd probably have to roll around on the floor like a running pig to get the full effect. After spending most of the night pretty much hiding behind a cigarette machine in fear that someone might actually talk to me, I realize that in Bali or back home, I'm just not much of a nightlife kind of guy. I decide that tomorrow I want to see the other side of Bali, the spiritual side. Tomorrow I want to see temples. Tomorrow is a new day, and the great thing about a new day is that it actually is a new day. Is it possible to avoid the snare of Bali's cheap drink, massages, great food, and beaches to hit the countryside and visit temples? It seems like it'd take some willpower, but I think I can handle it. I approach one of the stands on the street that advertise tour guides. For not very much money at all, I'm told I can rent a car with a driver who would take me around all day from morning until night, showing me rice fields, volcanoes, farms, villages, and temples. And so I meet Madai. He's in his early 20s and speaks almost no English. I get into the back of his minivan, feeling like a visiting dignitary. About a half hour into the trip, Madai stops the car and points at a billboard. 
He mimes, snapping a photograph, and then points at me. What is it, I ask? He points at it. It appears to be an advertisement for a restaurant. Not wanting to hurt his feelings, I take a picture of it. Our route is made up of one-lane highways, and Madai likes to pass as often as is possible. And this is something he seems to almost exclusively do on turns, sharp ones, while going uphill. My shirt is soaked with sweat, and not heat sweat, fear sweat. Along the road, it looks like this. Rice field, McDonald's billboard, junkyard, rooster, hovel, luxury hotel, beautiful natural vista, children playing in the dirt, a temple, graffiti for rock bands like Rancid. There are also many signs advertising products that use the language of the soul. Even a dish detergent might employ Journey of the Soul in its ad copy. The night before, I came across a drink made of vodka, cranberry, pineapple, and lychee syrup called the Soulgasm. Madai pulls into a coffee plantation and introduces me to the manager. She makes an attempt at explaining to me Kopi Luwak, which I've never heard of before. Later, I will look it up online and learn that it is the caviar of coffee and can go for $35 to $80 a cup. But just now, as she explains it to me, I can only think something is being horribly lost in the translation. The cat, she says, he eat coffee, then he poo, and it is very superior coffee. What do you mean the cat poo, I ask? She points to her butt. She smiles. She is cute smiling and pointing to her butt. I know I'm missing something, that she can't actually be pointing to her butt. Maybe her hip? It's a hip coffee? Poo is Balinese for top rate? But we keep going back and forth, the pantomime becoming more and more explicit until the conclusion is inevitable. You mean the cat craps out a coffee, I ask? We laugh and laugh and she nods her head yes. Wow, I say, there's no way I'm going to drink a cup of cat It doesn't smell like poop, she says sternly. It seems I've gone too far, stepped over a line. Still, each time she says the word poo, she points to her butt. We both do. She takes me out back to a cage in the forest, where inside I see a civet, a jungle cat, sleeping, surrounded by what appears to be berries. I don't want to insult her, the cat, or their livelihood, and so, botulism be damned. What is spirituality anyway if not a willingness to see past the material to the realm of ideas? And so I say yes to a cup of coffee that CNN once referred to as Crappuccino, and it doesn't taste bad at all. Yes, it's a new kind of coffee, roasted by a new secret process. Just taste it. Now that's a monologue. All right. That, yeah, spelled correctly, maybe, <laughs> with a U-E. Uh, so that's not an essay? I don't think that's a radio essay. I think that's a monologue. It's, it's, there's no tape from Bali that he's incorporating into the scene. Okay. There's no interviews. There's no phone calls. That's a straight-up monologue but done there was, expertly. There was no tape in Starley's piece. There was music. Yeah. And, it, and that piece does transition to her calling Phil Collins and telling him about her ex-boyfriend. And, and asking him if he thinks it'll, the pain will ever go away. Hmm. 
And he says, I don't so know other if you people, really wanted to go alone. As soon as you throw in other people, that, that you, you can't have a monologue. I don't know. They're all different. Well, let's, we've, we're running out of time here, so I don't know. If, you know, We've only got a few minutes left, so I don't think we're going to be able to play the John Ronson clip, which means folks are just going to have to come on Saturday. So uh, it's the last time we'll be talking about this. And then next week, uh, Andrea, you're doing the show solo. That's here. right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to be speaking with Tim from 40 Days of Dating, the very controversial um, project where two friends decided that they date for 40 days and create a beautiful online art project about it. I want to put a gun in my mouth and just blow my brains out. Did you read about this, Ben? I did not. <laughs> Sounds it exciting. Was picked, it was all over the news. And, um, all right. So that's they, what... They got a movie deal out of it. This is Amazing. That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they had stipulations. You know, they had to... Um, uh, it's okay. We, you save it for next week. Save it for next okay. week. So that'll be uh, on the program next week as I will be, you know, recovering from the Radiovision thing that we're doing this Saturday. Hope to see you there. And uh, stay tuned for Nardwar, who's up next. Thanks again, Andrea. That was fun. You're listening to WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, in Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at WFMU.org. Coming up next, Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. Wood.
Listening to WFMU, and it's time right now for the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Lucrate Milk. She told me about the Leeds Permanent Building Society Danger Records reissue from 2013, brought to you by Johnny Cat Records. Yes, Johnny Cat Records. Thank you, Johnny from Portland just handed me a whole bunch of Lucrate Milkish type records. Well, one was Lucrate Milk and also a whole bunch of stuff from the Johnny Cat record label. We're going to play some of that on the Nardwater Human Serviette radio show today and some stuff on the Danger record label, the reissue label that reissued Lucrate, Lucrate Milk from France, 19. 19- 81. And today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, speaking of Europe, an interview with King Khan and the Shrines. King Khan and the Shrines from Germany. Today on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. King Khan and his Shrines on the Nardwar the Human Serviette Radio Show. And as I mentioned, King Khan and his Shrines are from Germany. So thought I would get you ready for King Khan and his Shrines with some German. German music. Here are the blizzards from Germany, 1966, with Hab Klein. Hab keine Lust, heute aufzustehen. in das Bad zu gehen mit den bloßen Füßen über'n kalten Flur mit seinen großen bloßen Füßen über'n kalten Flur hab keine Lust heute aufzustehen hab keine Lust heute aufzustehen Thank you. 